Today's episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody is brought to you by Banded. If you're tired of settling for second-rate gear that doesn't perform when it counts, look no further than Banded, the ultimate choice for hunters and outdoor enthusiasts. From top-of-the-line hunting jackets to ultra-comfortable, meticulously crafted waders, Banded has everything you need to take your outdoor game to the next level. And what's more, their gear and camel patterns are anything but average, designed to give you the edge you need to succeed. But it's not just their gear that makes Banded stand out. Their accessories, like their backpacks, are built to withstand anything the outdoors can throw at you. And their decors are trusted by the best guides and outfitters across the nation. Trust us, you won't find better gear anywhere else. Head over to Banded.com and experience the difference for yourself. Choose Banded and dominate the outdoors like never before. This episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody is brought to you by the famous Nashville Palace, the iconic music venue, restaurant and bar right in the heart of Music Valley, Nashville. For over 40 years, the Nashville Palace has been a must-visit destination for anyone looking for an authentic Nashville experience. It has hosted some of the biggest names in country music history, from Johnny Cash to Dolly Parton to George Jones, and continues to be a hub for local and national artists to showcase their talents. But the Nashville Palace isn't just a music venue. It's a full-service restaurant and bar that offers a mouth-watering selection of Southern cuisine, from classic comfort food like fried chicken and mashed potatoes to more adventurous side dishes like fried alligator. And you can wash it all down with one of their signature cocktails, like the Boot Scootin' Lemonade or a Palace Punch. If you're planning a trip to Nashville or just looking for a fun night out, head over to thefamousnashvillepalace.com to check out their upcoming events and make a reservation. Are you a collector, Sean Estes? Like, are are, are you a, 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 not a hoarder? but a memento collector that's close to your heart that meant something to you? Like, do you have your Douglas High School jersey in a frame that Hal Wheeler might have given you? Are you a collector of everything that meant something to you in your career? You know what? I'm not a collector. I'm definitely not a hoarder. Uh, but I do have some pretty significant things like, that were part of my career that I kept. And, and a lot of it had to do with other people giving them to me. Uh, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, let me keep this ball. Obviously, you'd like to keep your first win, first home run that I ever hit, first hit that I had, a lot of the firsts. But we had a guy in our clubhouse, uh, a guy named Buck, who's no longer around, but he used to grab after something, uh, you know, significant that happened, like like first win, for example, a uh, thousandth hit for somebody. He grabbed the, the ball from the game. He'd get the lineup card from whoever the manager was at the time. It was uh, oh great, of course my dog. You're good. She never barks, Chad. She must sense something, Estes. Yeah, she's a hunting dog. She she uh she she doesn't hunt, but she's a she comes from a, a litter of hunting hunting dogs. It's a yellow lab. Oh yeah, but nice. She, but she's uh but she's. She doesn't ever bark. It's crazy. She's like the sweetest dog, but every once in a while, something will get her riled up. Just so happen to have right now. Bad it might, timing. It might be my, <laughs> it might be my uh, voice. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it's your voice. I think it's the, I think it's actually the pool guys. <laughs> the pool guys <laughs> uh, anyway, so, um, yeah, so this guy, Buck, he would grab the ball. He'd get the lineup card. At the time, it was Dusty Baker was my manager, and then Dusty would sign the lineup card, and he'd make these plaques, um, you know, and you'd frame them. And I got a couple on the on the wall over there, as you can kind of see. That's you know, back, cool. Back right in there. See those three? Yep. Over there. And I, I, 
don't know what the three of them are. I have about 20 of them because <laughs> he would he would he would get a little crazy, right? Second home run, third home run. Uh, I think I hit four of my career, so he'd keep them all, and then he'd frame them. Uh, hundreds, a thousand strikeouts, something like that. But I think the three I have over there are like my three firsts, you know, first hit, win, home run. So yeah, that's about it, man. And then and then some cool stuff that I would. I obviously got a Willie Mays signed ball, Willie Mays signed bat, Barry Bonds signed some stuff, you know, when he when he broke the home run record, uh, when he became uh, the first 40-40 guy, and I think uh, 600th home run, something like that. He signed a bat for everybody on the team. So, you know, a couple things here and there. I like pictures, you know, pictures of, you know, ex-teammates. I got one of Muhammad Ali up here. Uh, Sandy Koufax. Like uh, I, I assume, I assume that you're with them in the photos. Yeah. Yes. 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 Well, yeah, that's no, cool. Yeah. So yeah, Muhammad Ali. When I was with the D-backs, he came through. He he before he passed away lived out here in Arizona, um, and and so he came in our clubhouse. I think he probably five years before he passed away. So I got a I got a picture with him with Sandy Koufax couple of teammates i got a picture like strike mark mark mcguire the year that he uh broke the record um at the time when he hit 70 uh, he, i he i struck him out on three pitches in a game and somehow a, a photographer of the team got all three pitches um you know after the pitch during the pitch before the pitch and so i got three pictures of that at bat so that was kind of cool yeah you know, some playoff wins same things like that where we're celebrating on the field. But other than that, it's, I didn't, I wasn't a guy that you know, a, a green fly, you know, would, would go around and, and uh, every team that would come in get something from a player on the other team, a Jersey or whatnot. But I do have, I do have my Douglas high school number five baseball Jersey that coach Wheeler gave me about five, six years ago, they retired the number and he gave it to me at a little ceremony in Gardnerville. So that was cool. I got that. I got to get it framed, but I got it hanging up in my closet. I remember vividly it's my sophomore year, your senior year, 90, 90, maybe 91 um, at McQueen. It's Sean Estes against Jason Rogers, who is another tall, prolific lefty think he went maybe second round to Baltimore maybe went to college first I don't don't quote me on any of that um but gall I just remember standing in the on deck circle and I'm a sophomore and I'd never seen anything like it I was like this just isn't even gonna be good because you know like Nate Yeske was coming up and he was young and he had some he had some good stuff Pete Lucich yeah. had Pete Lucich had some good stuff there was some pitchers uh um Joe Bells at Reed had a really good fastball but he had no control but man I just remember getting in that box I'm a lefty you're a lefty and I was like I literally have no chance <laughs> to see this ball so the 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 Douglas years how how soon did you know Sean that you were a, a prospect. How does it happen back in the early nineties in Northern Nevada to where sometimes you don't eat, like, like it snowed last week and it's the state, it's like the, almost the state playoffs up here, right? Like we're in the re, we're in the, the, the zone tournament up here with Minogue and, and uh, Reno and, and John Polson is coaching Damani ranch. I mean, it's like, a high of 55 these poor kids it's not baseball weather you're sitting down there around scottsdale where it's truly year-round baseball weather i mean 
to me, we're behind the gun up here. We're tough. We got to be tough to play baseball up here. How was how was it back then in in ninety three or ninety one? You're in ninety one. You go out. You are a first round draft pick to the Mariners out of high school. Correct me if I'm wrong, but how does it? How do you know as a sophomore that you're getting big looks and that you have something that's gonna be that's gonna uh, you know pave the path of your career one day? Not, not my sophomore year. Uh, it, it actually, for me, it started a little bit. It started the next year. Well, we went to state my sophomore year. We had a really good uh, senior class, and that was in 89. I graduated in 91. You're right. I got drafted by Seattle in 91. Um, and we had two guys, Russ Garside and Jake Rogers, that were our one-two pitchers. And uh, uh, Russ ended up getting drafted in the third round by the Padres, and then Jake went out to play some college baseball. Um, but we had a good senior class, uh, strong senior class. I was a sophomore. We went down to Vegas. And we played against Valley High School, which was at the time a top ten program in the country. They had two first, They had three guys drafted off that team. One in the first round that year, and I ended up playing with another guy, Doug Marabelli. He was a catcher, third baseman, and they were powerhouse. So there was a lot of scouts at that game when we played them. Obviously for the Tyler Houston, Doug Mirabelli, and Steve Rodriguez, who was their second baseman, but also for our guy, Russ Garside. So I came in after Russ, one of those games against Valley. My dad's sitting up in the stands next to a Reds scout. And he Russ, Russ gets taken out of the game. I come in from center field to pitch. The guy puts away his gun. He's about ready to go. My dad's like, hey, do you mind sticking around and seeing my – and just putting a gun on my kid? And just uh, – he's a sophomore left-hander. So he's like, sure, yeah, I'll stick around. So the guy put the gun on me, and I think I was throwing maybe 82 uh, my sophomore year. But the guy – but I had a good curveball. And so the guy's like, I like this kid. And he looked at my dad. My dad's 6'3", 240. He's like, he's going to grow too. Uh, and my dad rolled with it. Now this was my stepdad, so he didn't even he didn't tell him he was my stepdad. No blood relation. He just said, "Yeah, no, my kid's gonna grow." Uh, yeah, he's good. He's and he's and he said, "Well, I like his action. I like his arm. I think he's gonna grow, get stronger, probably throw harder." But I like his curveball. So I guess maybe that year put me on the map down in Vegas. But really, it was between my sophomore and junior year, I grew a little bit. He, I, I actually did grow. I was only five, five, eight my sophomore year. Ended up being six two, and I graduated. So between my sophomore year to my senior year, I grew four inches, put on about twenty pounds, and ten miles an hour in my fastball. So as that kind of happened, junior year, um, scouts started showing up a little bit. I went to the Area Code games between my junior and senior year in Lodi, California. Coach Wheeler took me to that. That's where all the college recruiters were. A bunch of professional scouts. And that's when I started getting recruited for colleges. And then my senior year is when, when I really took off. So it was a kind of a natural progression. It wasn't like, oh, this kid's a stud, a freshman year. Let's keep an eye on him. Um, it was, okay, here's a lefty. He's got a great curveball. Let's see how the velocity picks up as he gets older. And then by my senior year, I was, you know, I was topping probably 92, 93. So um, it came a little bit later for me, as I guess a little bit more of a late bloomer. Uh, but then, you know, I peaked at the right time, which is my senior year. And unfortunately, I was drafted in the first round as a result. And how much um, does stepdad request or demand for his commission check that year? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he, 
He, he got his. He got <laughs> his, and then some. Yeah, if you don't, no, I, if I it's think... not too personal, Sean asked this. Um, where where did the 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 size come from? I mean, was your biological dad big, the same kind of size as your stepdad, or where did it come from? Not even close. Five he's five ten, and uh, probably you know his prime probably a hundred seventy hundred eighty pounds at most. Uh, my I took after my mom's side of the family, and her brothers were all six two, kind of the same build as me. So uh, she's got three brothers, all pretty close to the same size. Um, and, and my mom's all she's five eight. So all the girls on my mom's side are pretty tall as well. So I guess I got lucky in that regard. And, and my stepdad actually wasn't lying to the scout my sophomore year when he said that I was going to grow. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but he was just hoping at that point. I always said I willed myself to grow because I, I you know and I know a lot of kids when they're when they're smaller when they're younger. Uh, and I got a senior in high school right now that was only five three his freshman year, um, and he would he willed himself to grow and he's still I think he's tapping out right about five ten five eleven so it didn't work for him. But we would literally my dad would would measure me on the wall and mark it off with the, with a pencil on the wall every month from the time I was a sophomore till I was a senior. And just because I was like trying to stretch a little bit more every month and I, and I was just, and I kept growing, man. I always used to think, man, growing's a mental thing. You, you can will yourself to get taller if you really want to. Cause I always thought, you know, you're going to take, I'm going to take after my, my biological father. Like I'm going to, I'm going to end up being his size. Uh, but fortunately, and had I ended up 5'10", 170, you know, I probably wouldn't end up being as strong and throwing as hard, to be honest with you. So the size, the size absolutely did matter for me. You, you know, in the last decade or 15 years, everybody in the San Francisco Giants, you know, organization, or a lot of fans up here in Northern Nevada, they tout Baumgartner as the home run hitter. But you... I mean, you hit a grand slam as a giant. You were a, a a stud all around athlete. You had great strength, bat speed. You you played different positions on the field as well as pitched at Douglas. Obviously, um, you know you got. We, you already told us you got called in from the outfield. Did you play multiple sports, Sean Estes? And where I want you to go with this is: is it okay for a stud baseball player? to play football or golf or basketball or wrestle, can you be a multi-sport athlete and take some time off of baseball in today's world of travel teams and year-round ball and weight training and conditioning and all the things that go in to wanting to get to where you got? Were, were you like that? Were you year-round? Were you having specialized training? Did you have that back then? No, we didn't, man. Douglas, you know, in Minden, Nevada, there's not a lot of travel ball. I mean, now, now I think they do have a, a club – that, that's in town uh and you know at the time it was carson had uh, um the carson the capitals and and mcnutt was running that team and it was a team that traveled but i don't know if you know this but we hated carson douglas did and so we we didn't you couldn't do you couldn't play for mcnutt in the summer i don't care how good you were Wheeler was like, you're playing summer league with us or don't even show up when the fall hits, when school starts, just, just stay at Carson. If that's where you want to go. I mean, there was that, there was that definitely that hatred, that rivalry. We, we got into a, a, more than a, more than a couple brawls with Carson over the years. Uh, my dad, matter of fact, um, got involved with one of the brawls at governor's field in Carson and he got banned for life because he, he came out of the stands to try to break it up. 
that was against Carson. That was with the Madsen brothers. And that was my, that was my sophomore year that has, you know, and then the rivalry continued. So that was the, kind of my only option for club ball, but I knew it wasn't an option. So I just played summer league with, with Douglas. There wasn't a lot of the specialized training at all. It was, you play three sports. If you like football, basketball, baseball, or whatever it is, go ahead and play them. Um, but my dad didn't let me play football. In, in hindsight, it was a good move. Uh, just maybe probably more from an injury perspective. And, but I always played basketball, and I, I love basketball. It's probably my favorite sport. It's just more fun, you know. It was more fast-paced, running up and down the court. Uh, I loved it. I played point guard and up until my senior year because I ended up probably a blessing in disguise. Broke my leg my junior year playing basketball and was fortunate enough to get ready in time to play my fresh uh, my my junior year of baseball but it was it was definitely an easy decision come see my senior year not to play basketball i'd recommend it i know it's a lot harder in this day and age especially out here in arizona where it's just so competitive that the baseball is so competitive and if you want to play at a high level you almost have to play year round um there's a few kids that that they're able to do a couple sports. There's a kid that played on my son's uh, um, varsity team this year that played football, basketball, and baseball. And he ended up starting a sophomore year on the varsity team in baseball. So he's just, but he's kind of an outlier athlete. You know, it's just to, for a kid to be able to just step right in to that sport and excel at a high level is very difficult because these kids that are playing club ball in year round, they're so much more advanced and ahead of the, and ahead of a lot of those players. I think it helps you become a better athlete in all, all around. Um, basketball helped me become a better athlete in baseball from just a stamina standpoint, an agility standpoint, a quickness, um, you know, and, and, and also really it allowed me to stay hungry for baseball because I didn't get burnt out. I looked forward to baseball every year because I wasn't playing it year round. I was playing it in the summer and I was playing it in the spring. Other than that, the fall and in the, in the winter, I was playing basketball in the winter and I was training in the fall. So uh, it, 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 I got excited to put that glove on again, you know, come spring. And I think a lot of kids, they, they really do. They get burnt out. I've seen it happen. I coach my kid in club ball. They, a lot of these kids don't, you know, by their freshman, sophomore year, junior year of high school, they just don't have the hunger to play anymore. It's just uh, for one reason or another, they lose the love for it. So I would recommend at least playing two sports. But I'll be honest, man, they make it very difficult. You know, I have a freshman in college right now, and, and he played football freshman, junior, senior, or freshman, sophomore, junior year, and broke his collarbone in football his junior year, was late to the season, and almost didn't get a chance to play his junior year um, because, because he was so far behind, and that was because of an injury from football. So you run that risk of injury, but I guess it depends on really how far you want to take it. You know, do you, is high school the end of the rope for you? You just want to enjoy that experience or do you want to take it further? And then you got to weigh that risk reward, you know, of, of, of an injury. I think football probably more so than any other sport, you know, you run the risk of injury, but, um, you know, playing soccer, basketball, I really think it helps you become more of a well-rounded athlete. With you knowing the potential of injury in a game like football. I mean, it's not hard to see. I mean, let's be honest. It's it's dangerous, in my opinion. I'm not saying you can't get beamed by a Sean Estes 97-mile-an-hour fastball. I'm not saying that you can't come down and twist your ankle on somebody's foot in basketball. Would you let your kids or your sons play football if they wanted to, or were you against it? 
I was against it, but they wanted to. And coming into their freshman year at, at a high school, a big high school, um, looking back on it, it's the best decision that they made. I mean, I honestly had to sign off on it, but I wasn't a proponent of it. And, and probably because I knew that there was risk. They had never played football before. So I think that was kind of the, the silver lining, that, in my opinion, was that they hadn't played. Most of these kids had come in playing club football uh, as youth. They were going to be the kids that were going to start. So I was like, you know what? This will be good for them. They'll be able to practice. Um, it'll help them become better athletes. It'll help them become quicker, tougher, and then they probably won't play on game day. So I don't have to run the risk of them getting hurt, right? Well, and that did. That happened their, their freshman year. They barely played. Um, but then they, they, they started really loving football. And they actually liked football better than, than any other sport. And so they both wanted to play their sophomore year. Then they both started actually playing. And then that's when the injury started, you know, um, mainly for my older kid. He had a meniscus injury. Then he had the collarbone. Um, you know, and ultimately he didn't end up playing baseball in college, but it could have derailed that, that, that path had he wanted to. Um, but I still would say, like, I'm not going to – I don't want my kids to have any regrets. And, and I think that if I wouldn't have allowed them to play football, they would have had those regrets of not being able to play and a lot of their buddies were playing. They made some great friends. And especially coming into a high school, a big high school, your freshman year, these kids are practicing in the, in the summer. They've already got their unit, their, their buddies, before they even step foot on campus. And so it's, it's a much easier transition from middle school to high school when you have your boys already and you're playing football and you're wearing your jerseys on Friday before the game. And everybody knows, you know, you're on the football team. I think it does a lot for self-confidence as well. Were you a satellite dad during these football years of your team, of your kids playing? Were you in the stands shaking and nervous or were you able to relax? I know, I know a lot of my, you know, MMA and UFC buddies, their wives won't go to the, the fights because they're just can't, they can't handle it. Their moms won't go. Some of them do. Don't get me wrong. But what, were you able to relax and watch or were you on pins and needles the whole time? No, like I said, they didn't play their freshman year. So that was easy. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, kind of. It was, I was that dad that was like, Hey, just put them in the game. Let's see what they can do. Right. <laughs> and then at that, and then, and then at the end of the day, I'm like, well, it's probably better. They didn't play it. They didn't, they didn't get hurt. Right. So, uh, but then after when they both started playing a little bit, then, then yeah, football's intense, man. I mean, MMA is a different level altogether just because it's one-on-one and team sports, you know, you can hide behind some of your teammates. Some of your teammates can pick you up. Um, if you have a bad game, you can still win as a team. But if you have a bad match and it's one-on-one, you're wrestling, or it's on you. It's just there's nobody else to save you. So I, I think it's a much it's a much harder sport to watch. Any any individual sport is a lot harder to watch for a parent because it's it's the focal point is on that kid yeah. and how they're doing one-on-one. Uh, my kids never played individual sports. My son played a little bit of golf, but. Uh, not to like a level where it was almost just for fun. So I, as a dad, get nervous because he didn't take it that serious. But, you know, when your kid gets up to the plate, it's a big situation. And, um, you know, you want them to do well. And it's completely out of your control, the results of what happens. Um, that's, to me, that's what's, that's where I get nervous. That's when my heart starts to pump a little bit. My, my, one of my kids pitched in high school pitching. Watching your kid pitch as a parent, 
that's tough. I mean, that because really is that's that's about as one on one as you're going to get. They're the focal point. You know, the game doesn't happen until they let go of the baseball. And a lot of blame falls on the pitchers, right? You know, you give up, make a bad pitch, you get get knocked around, walk a guy, you know, walk a few guys. Uh, you know, it, it's it's tough to watch as a parent. Uh, but the team sport's a little easier to handle. But I, you know, I was I was a guy. I sat in the stands. I mind my own business. I wasn't yelling and screaming. I sat next to a couple dads that I had something in common with, and. Um, of course we second guessed every move the coach made. I mean, that's normal, <laughs> but, but we, but we'd never go talk to the coach about it. Right. It would just be amongst us, um, and how we would have done it. But, uh, my, my senior in high school just finished. They just got bounced in the playoff playoffs last week. So that was it for me. And I got, I got younger ones. So I, they'll be able to run it back in about, you know, seven or eight years. Uh, but I got a little bit of a, a gap now between it before I have to like really start to <laughs> really start to get nervous again. When, take us back to what we started with Sean Estes, please. What was your senior year? Like you become the state of Nevada Gatorade player of the year. You're all state. You, 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 I, for lack of better terms, kind of unhittable. Were you unhittable? Did you have any troubles in Northern Nevada that year? Was it easy? Was it a breeze for you that year? Was it competitive? Did people get fired up to face you? How did it go? I know that you end up becoming a first-round draft pick to the Seattle Mariners before you're traded to San Francisco, but was it just kind of like a joke that year, or was there some some lean competition that that actually put the bat on the ball? I don't remember seeing many bats on the ball. Yeah, uh, there there was – Reed was pretty good my senior year. Um, my senior year is one of those things where I just, I think, I think I came, I came into the season with a lot of confidence because I felt over the summer between junior and senior year, um, I really picked up a lot of velocity. I was stronger and the summer league went really well. I was doing some stuff. I was playing in some scout leagues. I'd gone to Berkeley and faced Cal Berkeley's, you know, Team, I'd gone up to Reno and, and pitched for for Reno in the summer a couple times, and I was having success against college hitters. So it really gave me a lot of confidence coming into my senior year. And plus, I had already signed my letter of intent for my for a call for the college I was going to go to, which was so Stanford, I, I believe, right? Yeah, I was going to go to Stanford, so I'd already had that kind of out of the way, and so I came into my senior year like really feeling good about things. And didn't really know what the competition level was going to be like. Let, let's face it, it's Northern Nevada baseball. It's not powerhouse baseball. I mean, there's there's some talent that comes out of there. But, you know, for the most part, you know, you, I felt kind of like a big fish in a small pond. And so, um, you know, but I didn't, you, know, you don't know until you go out there and you, you get into it, how good you are. Um, but then I started to realize, and then the scouts started to show up. And then I started to, like, really believe in myself. And... Then I saw the results, and, and really it was – I was my own worst enemy. Um, I was very competitive. Uh, I really didn't have a good idea how to throw strikes consistently, believe it or not. I mean, I'd walk a lot of guys. Uh, I'd strike out a lot of guys, but I'd also walk a lot of guys, and I would get in these ruts where, you know, I had a tough time throwing strikes. That, to me, was my – was the only re- the only way – that uh, I was going to struggle in a game is if I just lost feel for the strike zone and couldn't get it back. 
And then I would start hoping, right? And say that all day, I hope I throw a strike here rather than knowing you're going to throw a strike. But when I got in a groove, like I didn't feel like I'd be hit. You know, I was, it was just here, hit my fastball and then two strikes, here comes the hammer, right? And it, you're just, you're going to, I'm going to strike you out. And it, that, that, that was the mentality I got into. I wanted to strike every guy out, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like I'm going to try to get him out. I want to strike him out. But there was a team, Reed High School, my senior year, that actually had a, had a good squad. And they had a really good pitcher that was actually drafted, a kid named Pat Fleury. Um, and I ended up playing against him in the minor leagues at some point. But I knew that, that he was good enough to shut our offense down, so I knew I had to be my best against them. And they had some guys that could hit. And we got we, we faced them during the regular season, and I think we ended up beating them. But it was a it was a battle, and then we faced them in zone, and uh, it was it was the it was the zone finals, the chance to go to state, and they beat us. It was my last game I played at Moana Stadium. Remember old Moana Stadium in Reno? Uh, That's where we used to have the playoffs. And I pitched against Pat Pat Dell. I didn't pitch that well. And we lost the game. And, and I just remember Mark Marcus, the head coach of Stanford, was in the stands watching me. And I, I was crying in the dugout. I was like, I was devastated, man. I mean, I really, really wanted to, to win a state title. And uh, I just I remember going in the stands after the game and talking to Marcus and kind of like, are you sure you still want me, coach? <laughs> after what you just witnessed, are you sure you still want me to pitch for you? You know, I was really down on myself. But to, for the most part, my senior year, I just – I just had a lot of confidence, man. I, I just, I didn't feel like I could get hit. And it was almost like if I gave up a hit, it like elevated me to another level of com- of competitiveness. It was like, what the heck just happened? Other guys from other teams would try to round me up in the dugout, try to get under my skin, you know, and, and, and they should, right? Try to take me out of my game. Sometimes I get ticked off enough where I'd look over and say something back to them and, and, you know, and then I would walk the next three batters. <laughs> so it was like, hey, it's time to get locked back in. But great memories from that from that year outside of the, the final game of my high school career. Yeah I, yeah, I played at UNLV with John Coates, who was probably on that Reed team. I think he was player of the year his senior year. I don't know if he was on that Reed team. He might have been a year older than that, but they had – they had John Coates, Teddy Foster, Ty Ellison. They had some good sticks. Even as young kids, they I remember a couple of those kids playing up our sophomore year. Um, was minor leagues much different? Were you did you go up there and, and and have the same amount of confidence, or did did you get humbled at all going to the next level? Because it I, correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, but it didn't take too long to get to the major leagues, did it? Maybe I'm wrong on that, but it seems like your minor league career oh. flew by and you were you were in the show by like 94 or 95. Yeah, so I got I got I made my debut in 95, so I would have been um 22. Yeah, so that would have been four four about four and a half years in the minor leagues, but I'll tell you what humbled is 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 an understatement, man. I and I talked about being a big fish in a small pond and, and sometimes I wonder if that's if that was a good thing right um or if i would have say for example been down here playing in arizona with the same skill set where there's a lot of really good players and you know hitters that are d1 hitters that come out of a lot of them if if that would have helped me prepare me better for the minor leagues or if i wouldn't have been as i wouldn't have stood out as much right so i stood out in northern nevada i don't know if I would have stood out as much 
say in Phoenix. Okay. But it, it allowed me to have a lot, gain a lot of confidence, um, to be recognized, to stand out a little bit more to where I got the recognition. But then I was in for a rude awakening, man, when I got to the minor leagues and I talk about confidence coming out of high school. Like I thought I should be in the big leagues. Uh, no joke. I, I like, I'll be in the big leagues and, and the, the Mariners reporters asked me questions after I got drafted. And, and of course the, the one, one of the reporters always has to ask, like, when do you think, you know, how long do you think it's going to take you to get to the big leagues? And I remember saying like, if I'm out there in three years, I'll be disappointed. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to fight. I mean, how can I not like that? That's, that's how confident I was in my abilities at the time. So they sent me to short season A ball in Bellingham, Washington. And because you get drafted in June, so the season's already happening and all the other long season teams. So I went to a short season team. Every guy there is a college guy, right? Or they're they're from the Dominican or Venezuela. They've been playing since they're, you know, professionally since they're 16. Um, so this is like their fourth year of playing. Or their high school kids, this is their second or third year out of high school. Dude, I sucked. Oh, I was so bad. Um, and I had this first round like mentality that I'm going to come in and I'm just going to dominate and I'm just going to move up the ladder. It, it couldn't be further from the truth. I, I, I led the Northwest League and I was there from, I signed in July, so it was a month and a half. I led the Northwest League, and it probably is a record that stands to this day for box. For box. I had 13 box in a month and a half, okay? I was so – the game sped up so so much for me. And in high school, you didn't have to come set before you went pitched home. You could bounce, right? But in the professional levels, they, they, they incorporated the stop. And I was so mental because not only could I not throw strikes consistently – all the strikes that I threw were getting whacked. And I'm like, what's going on? Like, this shouldn't be happening, right? This never, what, what, I'm getting hit, like, consistently. Guys are hitting home runs off of me. I'm like, what's happening? So I couldn't even, like, get to the point mentally where I could stop when a runner was on base because I was thinking about so many things. And uh, that talk, I was humble, man. Like, did I ever doubt that I would like, did I ever doubt that I would get to the big leagues? No, I, I always felt that I could get to the big leagues, but I knew at that point that it wasn't going to be as quick as I thought it was going to happen. And then I needed, there was a lot of work to be done. Um, and, and, and that lasted for a few years. No joke. I did not pitch well in the minor leagues until the year I got called up to the big leagues. And that's why it might've seemed kind of quick because I went low a ball or I went short season A ball, back to short season A ball, to low A ball, back to the same spot in low A ball, back to the same spot in low A ball. And that was the year that things clicked for me. And it clicked in the off season. I met with the team uh, psycho sports psychologist, and I and I got and a guy got a hold of me and really worked with my mechanics, got named Ron Romanic, and then Gary Mack was the guy that, that worked on my head romantic worked on my arm and my mechanics and then there's in structural league in the off season of 94 into 95 the light the, the switch went on and i was almost like i was back in high school again it was like confidence came back things i can control 
that's all I focused on is what I can control. Where before I was like worried about everything else, umpires, defense, the weather. Um, and now I was like in a right state of mind mentally. Physically, I was able to throw the ball where I wanted to. And now I was starting to get results again. And that was when I took off. So I went from low A ball to high A ball to double A to the big leagues all in one year. So that's why it kind of seems fast. Like if you look at the trajectory, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, you only played four years in the minor leagues. Well, no. I played four years in the minor leagues, and I wasn't above A ball yet. Low A ball. I didn't even get wow. to high A. And then all of a sudden it went boom, 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 boom. And I was there. And then the next year, you know, I didn't make the team out of spring training, went to AAA, and then got called up at the All-Star break, and then I was there to stay. But, um, but it, it was humbling. Um, I went through a lot of different emotions, man. There was a, there was a point when I got traded from Seattle to the, to the Giants, and that was that same year I got called up to the big leagues. There was a point where I started to doubt that I would get to the big leagues even. As good as I felt confidence-wise, I just – I was like, that team just gave up on me. They must, there must be something. Maybe I'm not as good as I think I am right now. But then when I got to the Giants, they made me feel like we we love we love we we traded for you. We traded a big leaguer for you. We have a lot of we have a lot of faith in you. We believe you're going to be part of our future. And just hearing that, you know, gave me comfort, and I could just kind of pick up where I left off. Uh, and then that's when, you know, that's when I, I got the biggest, I got the biggest with the giants that year. Besides not trying to control the uncontrollable, what did that sports psychologist, team psychologist get in your head with? What could you tell young kids right now? Like you, you might think too much, you might have too big of an ego and you might need to get knocked off of it a little bit. Um, you, you might have the wrong preparation techniques or the visual uh, Ted Williams wrote about visualization and how important it is in the science of hitting and what a great book and what a great chapter. I use visualization today in the business world, visualization it's key, but what, what could you tell a young guy right now, Sean Estes, that that sports psychologist got in your head with that turned it around? Yeah, outside of just controlling the controllables and, and really simplifying just how you think. And um, visualization was another one, you know, you know, visualizing breathing. Uh, breathing is, is, is a big part. I mean, we obviously got to have to breathe to stay alive, but there's definitely ways to slow your heart rate down and to bring things in a clear focus. If you're not breathing correctly and if you're breathing quickly, then that's when things start to speed up on you. That's when the heart rate starts to pick up. That's when you get too quick. That's when um, you make poor decisions. And when you're able to slow your heart rate down, breathe, you're able to visualize and see the picture of what you want to have happen. And if you can consistently do that, and it may not happen like you want to all the time, but if you can consistently do that, it's going to happen more often than not. You're going to get positive results. Not just that, it's how you deal with failure as well. Okay. Do you look at failure? Is it you're a failure or do you look at failure as it's just a moment of failing, right? And how am I going to improve or am I just going to forget about it and realize it's one pitch. It's one at bat. It's one game. Um, that's not going to, first of all, it's not going to define who I am. And second of all, if I'm, if I focus too much on that, it's not going to allow me to, to move forward and, and, and make progress. So it's, it's really 
visualization, breathing, and, and controlling what you can control. Um, those are the things that I took out of that. And outside of that, one of the things you can control is how hard you work. I mean, and that's what I would tell kids is that you have one thing you can do, and that's outwork your opponent, period. And Or believe that you're outworking your opponent. You don't know what he's doing, but you know how hard you're working. And I would also say, and I think that the stigma was when I played, is that is that if you go get help for this, that you're weak, that something's wrong with you. Um, you got to figure it out on your own. And that's not the case. I was forced to go see Gary Mack when I was with Seattle because they knew that if I didn't, I would never be a big leaguer. There's no chance. They knew that that was the only way. And they, and I still, I felt like that I had to hide it. You know, I, it was the off season. I was here in Arizona. I was going to instructional league. I didn't tell anybody. I met with Gary Mack at his house, at a restaurant, at a park. I caddied for him on the golf course. I didn't want anybody knowing that I was seeing him. And I, I think that that, the stigma of that back then is different than now it's different. I think that now people are talking more about mental health and, 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 in all big league teams now have a sports psychologist in the clubhouse and they, they are recommending players see these guys, see these people on a daily basis or a weekly basis or whatever it is. And it's not a sign of weakness. It's only improving yourself and ultimately helping the team become better. You know, and on a team sport, your ultimate goal is to win a championship. The only way that that's going to happen is if everybody's on the same page and they're pulling from the same rope. And now that that part of that rope is, is getting the mind right on a daily basis. Um, they have breath giants have a breathing coach. They go walk in the outfield with their bare feet and it kind of looks silly, but go do it, man. And you'll be in a better place. Trust me. Uh, mentally and, and, the game just doesn't speed up on these guys anymore. Um, they're all in a pretty good place mentally. And if they aren't, they have the resources to go help them, help them out. Um, I, I think that, I think that if, if, if that were the case with me, um, I would have actually utilized it probably more than anybody, but I, I still, even when I got to the big leagues, looked at it as a sign of weakness and it wasn't many guys talking about going to see sports psychologists and if they were, they were the minority, and they were looked at as something's wrong with them. It's a great point. From the, I, think, I don't think that could be further from the truth. It's something's a great wrong point. with everybody. And, and, and sports, it doesn't end in sports. Um, you know, we, we, we talk a lot now about how we let our sports identify who we are when that's not the case. Um, and it's great to be the stud in high school in the letterman's jacket and Friday night lights and, you know, and the, all, all the stigma that comes with that. But as you mature in life, there's things that you might need that in other areas of your life too. You know, you, the sports are not the only part. And I think one of the biggest things that I've seen in athletics is like, I remember my junior year of college, <clears throat> I had it on my refrigerator door with a magnet. I'm one of the top 1,477 players in the country because I did the math, and that's what I uh, estimated yeah. as being drafted that year. 
Why yeah. did you get drafted? I had Wally Walker, cross-checker for the Rockies, tell me, you're just not a five-tool player. You get to the ball well, but you got a weak arm. Your base running is good. You got some good speed. You cover some good ground, but you don't hit enough ball. Like, all this stuff. And I didn't make it. I didn't make it. But now, I get to talk to Sean Estes. I get to talk with Will Clark. I get to hunt with George Brett. My, I'm not saying that in a raw, raw way. I'm saying that if you let that define you and you give up that I could have easily given up and been like, dang it, man, life sucks. And I didn't, I just tried to find my place and find my seat on that bus to where I still get to go to the ballpark. I still get to go to the yard. I still get to be associated with players like yourself and ex players and, and, and talk about this game that I grew up loving so much. So I think that that's a big part of it. You see these UFC fighters, Sean, that career ends and a lot of them go dark because they don't know they went from being this small town kid in illinois to having the red carpet rolled out for them this this illustrious ufc career by dana white and the fertita brothers all of a sudden and then it's done and then they're like now what and i've seen it they go dark they need help they need mental stability and i and i want people that are listening to understand that there is nothing wrong with it i see a therapist today i i i would never do it life without it it's 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 a very very healthy part of my life and i'm glad you brought that up let me ask you this you come into the giants organization in 94 you're in the big leagues in 95 this is the year after matt williams is chasing the home run record this is right around the time barry bonds comes from pittsburgh to san francisco you got kurt Manwaring. you got robbie thompson this is a an awesome time in giants baseball um what was the climate like in baseball at that time sean estes after the strike i'm going this is the year after or right around the year after the strike ends you guys are coming back as uh, baseball union players a lot of people took a lot of grief for crossing the line the year before maybe two years before that what was the climate in baseball like were the fans pissed did you have to work extra harder to sell tickets and and now Barry Bonds starts hitting bombs I'm sure people start filling in the seats at Candlestick at that time what what was the climate like yeah, so not between 94, so 94, they, they went on strike. And like you mentioned, Matt Williams, you know, he was on pace to break the record that year. I mean, he was hitting bombs left and right. And then the, the season ends for him. So it's kind of unfortunate for him. And then 95, I was on the Ross, I was on the 40 man roster for the Mariners. So I got caught up in all that, even though that was still when I was at low able. So I was, I was trying to figure out, I was at home, I was in Gardnerville, you know, working out just waiting for this thing to end. Uh, I went to spring training. Finally, they settled it. I went to spring training on the roster, but they only had like a three-week spring training. It was a quick one. So Lou Pinello was the manager of the Mariners at the time. He saw me pitch one time. He said, beat it, kid. Go pitch in the minor leagues. Now we're trying to get our big league club ready to go. So I, I didn't really see what the climate was like at, right away after the strike ended in 1995 because uh, I was pitching in the minor leagues, and it was business as usual. Uh, I got called up in September of 95, but really when I saw it was in 96 and the fans were still pissed. Um, it, it really affected attendance. There was a lot of fans that just wrote baseball off. So they're never going to go watch another game. Um, and it was a real thing. I mean, around the league attendance dropped not until, and I know in 1997, um, which was my first full season with the Giants and the we went from worst to first. Mountain Williams was no longer part of that team. Kurt Manwaring was gone. Robbie Thompson was gone. Royce Clayton was gone. All the guys that were there in 95 when I got called up, they Brian Sabian did a complete rebuild and brought in a bunch of free agents, went with a bunch of rookies. 
and we gelled. We won the division that year. So in San Francisco, I didn't notice it because we were winning games and the fans were showing up, right? And it was candlestick. So yeah, you get 20,000 on a weeknight and then a weekend, you get a pretty good crowd. The Dodgers come in, they sell it out. I didn't notice it. What I really started to notice the fans starting to come back league wide was in 98 when uh, McGuire and Sosa were duking it out for the home run title. And all eyes were on baseball at that point. They were world leaders. We're talking about it. Uh, it was the talk of the, really not just the country and baseball fans, but it, it, it reached out to, to people beyond baseball. Um, you got these two guys from different countries, division rivals, just hitting home runs, just like leapfrogging each other. It's, it's, you know, it was just back and forth. It was, it was must-see TV every time they got up to the plate. And it was must-see batting practice as well, where fans would go to these would go to games just to watch their BP. Um, so I felt like those two guys and that competition brought fans back to the ballpark in 1998. But it took a while. You know, the climate of baseball mm. wasn't great coming into the season in '95, '96. <clears throat> it was still a little lull. '97, at least in San Francisco, based on how the team did, fans were coming back, and the '98. They came back in full force. Vision. I just had a lens retraction surgery last year. It's pretty much like cataracts that you're going to get in your 60s, 70s. Everybody's going to get it. Once you get it, your vision is there. It's never changing. Artificial lenses. I had it at, in my mid-40s, and I'm telling you, with what I do with duck hunting and scouting and um, watching my daughter grow up, and, and I'm just so thankful that... I'm back to 2015 in my right eye and 2020 in my left eye, thanks to Dr. Matt Mills, who you've all heard on our podcast. But I want to protect my eyes, and that's exactly where one of our badass partners comes in, Oakley. Oakley Eyewear, the Oakley culture, the Oakley lifestyle. Protect your vision when you're shooting, when you're fishing. Nothing worse than getting a hook in the eye with somebody casting on the same boat. You just can't take it for granted. The damage the sun can cause, the rays, the UV, just keeping the dust and the dirt out of your eyes. Just everything during a hunt, pit blind, boat blind, it doesn't matter. Sun up, they make different lenses for different skies. Oakley standard issue, I just love the entire story and culture of Oakley Eyewear. They're iconic. They're sold all over the world and they support the military and the blue line and conservation and hunting and fishing in the outdoors and living off the land. And we never hunt without our Oakleys. Everybody's like, why you always got your sunglasses on? Shouldn't be wearing sunglasses. You probably shouldn't in turkey hunting. I don't wear them in turkey hunting because of the vision of a turkey and the reflection. But when I'm shooting consistently on this trap range or the sporting clays or the skeet or the five stand, or I'm in a duck hunt or a goose hunt, I have my Oakleys with me at all time. I put them in my banded backpack I have them in an Oakley hard case. I keep them protected. The prism, lenses, everything that goes in to the technology behind the Oakley brand and the frames, the function of them, all of the different lenses that you can get and the way they protect our eyes. The technology is second to none. You got to get a pair of Oakleys. I know there's a lot of choices out there when you want to protect your eyes. There's a lot of choices when it comes to being a customer of a eyewear company. But remember, please support the brands that support this lifestyle. Oakley, the official eyewear of the foul life tv the foul life podcast and everything we do here at the provider and where the payment ends thank you so much for supporting oakley okay so and i don't know if you can talk about this so just give me the shut it up sign (laughs) with the position you hold in, in the big leagues now and your job 
But this is kind of the beginning of what we have quoted, unquoted, the asterisk air. You've named three players in the last five minutes. Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, Cardinals, Cubs, Giants. Help bring back baseball. You just said it yourself. Fidel Castro was getting baseball signed by these guys. And uh, uh, the Pope was talking about baseball again. And, and, and people were fired up. People were back in the seats. Merch was selling. Beer sales were there. Baseball owners were making money again. And none of those three are in the Hall of Fame. Barry Bonds, and we're going to get into this before I let you go today, is absolutely 100% the best all-around baseball player of all time in the history of the game. I know that's very opinionated, Sean Estes, but nobody (laughs) touches that guy seeing one pitch a game or one pitch a series and hitting it into McCovey Cove. I understand Maybe they're healing better. Maybe they're working out more. They're getting bigger. Bonds went from a little scrawny dude at ASU to Pittsburgh with Bobby Bonilla and Andy Van Slyke, and all of a sudden he's big. He matured his body. Yes or no, Sean? Should these guys be in the Hall of Fame? Is this asterisk air? Did C-League and the league know about it? Because they had to do something to get the long ball going to get money and revenue back and asses in the seats. Yes or no? And can you answer that? And I'm sorry if I put you on the spot. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, I, 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 I've, I've answered this question quite a few times, and, and I, they absolutely should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, no doubt about it. Did Bud Selig know what was going on? Of course he did. I, I think everybody in, in a position of power knew what was going on, but they also were cashing checks, and, and they needed the game to come back. And that brought the game back, the home run ball, period. Yes. I just mentioned Sam Sosa and McGuire. If, if they're not – hitting home runs like they did in 98, who knows where, where baseball would have been or still be, would be, right? They needed something to create interest, to create, um, you know, just something that was kind of uh, otherworldly, you know, something that, that kind of – and that's what was going on, right? There were guys – they were hitting home runs. They were hitting long home runs. It was – offense was back. People love to see home runs. They like to see, you know, offense, and that's – that's why that that's why it was happening period i mean um did i know even in 1998 in 99 even that it was as prevalent as it was i didn't i really didn't i thought it was mainly a handful of guys that were doing it um i didn't think pitchers were doing it and that might maybe me being a little naive there um but then I start by by 2000. Um, and, and to be honest, like, I mean, I knew that, you know, back in the day, you had the Phillies guys and then you had the, 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 the A's guys, you know, with Ken Seiko and McGuire and that crew. I, I knew there was probably some steroid use happening there, right? But like I said, I didn't know it was as prevalent league wide. And then 2000 is when I first started saying, you know what? This is, this is a big, this is an issue. Like, these guys, like now, now I'm feeling at a huge disadvantage as a as a pitcher having to face these guys. Not only that, now I know there's pitchers doing it, and it's helping them, right? So now, not only are am I in a disadvantage based on the fact I'm not doing them, I have to I have to be even better, and now I have to be better than other pitchers that are doing them, which. They're, having, they're getting an advantage. So it's kind of pushing guys like me down. So was it frustrating? Absolutely. Uh, was I going to be a guy that's going to blow the whistle? No. Who would have, right? I mean, 
Canseco. <laughs> that was even, a joke. You're right. Well, I mean, exactly. It took it took Canseco to get the conversation started. It took a book, and he and he's blackballed. Like nobody, everybody hates hates Canseco because of that book. They felt like that was that that they, that was um, an unwritten rule of baseball that you know when you're done playing the game, you don't you don't write books, you don't write tell-all books about stuff that you that you uh, encountered in the privacy of your clubhouse and uh, your team, and um, that was a no-no. And but it had to be done, man. It had to be done because um, really, who knows who knows where we'd be at to the to this day if it hadn't been done right if there wasn't some light shed on that now with that being said i'm glad that they figured it out and they started testing it leveled the playing field but do i feel like the guys that did it that um benefited from it shouldn't be in the hall of fame well for a while i did because i felt i knew who those guys were but now some of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. So, and there's a bunch of them. So like, the in, in my opinion, now the floodgates are open. Like now, I don't even care now. Now you just let the best players get in. Um, and, and and then you start, you start to get into the moral aspect of things. And now, yeah, there's guys in the Hall of Fame that are racists. There's guys that cheated there in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, where, how does that fit into, you know, someone that did steroids? Well, it's true, um, and, and where do you draw the line? So that's that, that's where the gray area is. But I've finally taken the stance now is that if you have the numbers to get into the Hall of Fame, you should get in. And with that being said, Barry Bonds, without a doubt, should be in the Hall of Fame. You were shaking your head when I made my opinionated, very opinionated comment, Sean Estes. Is he the best player of all time in the history of baseball? Well, I mean, he was, I, I don't, and the reason why I'm, I'm even saying I don't know is because I didn't get to see a lot of those other guys play, right? Um, I didn't get to see Willie Mays play. Obviously, you didn't see Ted Williams, you didn't see Babe Ruth. I mean, if you're just looking at it, it numbers and if you're looking at what I, I mean, just from the eye test, what I witnessed, you know, playing with Barry for six years, um, no. There's not a better player that ever played the not a, not a better hitter. Now, and Willie did it on both sides, right, for his whole career. And he stole bases and he played gold glove defense. Um, he played center field, which is a very difficult position to play in the big leagues. I mean, you're the guy, you're the captain of the outfield. And, you know, and, and as far as is just staying healthy, you know, you're you're running, you're, you're tracking balls down the outfield. He's stealing bases still as he got older. Um, and then, all, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, he's also hitting home runs and hitting for average. So there, there's the one there's the one guy I put up against him because Barry, without a doubt, is the best hitter. Power, average, everything, just uh, ever to play the game. Have you ever heard – have you heard of any stories? Didn't mean to cut you off, but have you ever heard of any – you know Giants history better than I do. Did, did Willie Mays, who is the godfather of – Barry, correct? He's 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 Barry's yeah. got. Uh, I mean, Barry had some pretty good bloodlines, you know, coming up. And um, <laughs> but did they intentionally walk Willie Mays like they did Barry Bonds? Did they pitch around Willie Mays like they did Barry Bonds? I mean, Barry Bonds was lucky to see a pitch in the strike zone. You're right, and I think if Willie, if if Barry, 
if Barry would have stayed Barry pre-99, okay, um, that was Willie. I mean, Barry never had a strong arm, so he never played center. He always played left uh, because of his arm strength. But just his build, his athleticism in the outfield. I mean, he's gold glover in the outfield, too. I mean, he had an Several accurate times. arm. It wasn't strong. Um, but his ability to, to to steal bases. I mean, like I said, he was 40-40 guy. You know, so, he, he, so if he continued to be that player – like he was where he just wasn't a home run. He wasn't just a big, he didn't just focus completely on his hitting because his, his defense took a back seat when he started hitting home runs consistently. Right. I, I think if, if Barry could have done that till he was 40 years old, that would have been Willie Mays. Right. Because Willie Barry wasn't a guy that you walked intentionally prior to when he started hitting bombs. Right. Now, once in a while, you would. He may right? have been a leadoff hitter some in Pittsburgh, was he? A little bit, maybe? Yeah, I think he – I don't know if he hit leadoff, but, I mean, you might have been right. You might be right. At some point, he did probably hit leadoff. But, I mean, yes, did he get walked intentionally prior to all that? He, occasionally. I mean, he got walked with the bases loaded once. I'd never seen that before. <laughs> um, and that was, I think, in 1997 or 98. 98, I think, with, against the D-backs. Um, but – the frequency of his of him being walked obviously uh, went up, right, as his career went along. And then he would get a pitch or two to hit a game, and he would hit it out of the park and hit it hard yeah. somewhere. Yeah, just, that, watching. yeah it, it was – to me, that, that, that nobody will ever do that, ever again. Like, just, just his, his – just his intimidation factor when he walked into the box. And, and really, it was – everybody would stop what they're doing to watch his at-bats. And they would boo, and that's when the chicken thing started in right field, with potential walks. I mean, it became an event every time Barry got in the box. Nobody will ever, nobody will ever be able to repeat that type of must-see TV. You know, even as good as they show Shohei Otani is, or Mike Trout is, or, or Aaron Judge is, it's still it, – there's nobody that, that they'll, that'll have that um, – They'll have that. Uh, what's the word? Just that aura. That, that, that uh, yeah, that that magnification. That be able to mag, you know, bring people in, and and, and, yeah. and that's that's a small way of saying that Barry Bonds at least helped save baseball. I mean, that was almost like when Mike Tyson was knocking everybody out at 19, Sean, and me and you were in high school and middle school. I mean, I remember being at at dinners where people would be like stopping and make an announcement like Mike Tyson just knocked out Michael Spinks in 91 seconds, or you would not miss the pay-per-view. You had to be at the pay-per-view. You weren't going to miss this iron Mike Tyson guy from Catskill, New York. It, because if you were, if you were doing the dishes after dinner and you're one round late, your pay-per-view money's gone, right? Yeah. Like you wasted yeah. it. So it was kind of, so I think that it is just so sad that these guys are not in the Hall of Fame. I mean, Roger Clemens, I think seven Cy Young. Sean, did he have seven? So talk to me about you personally now. 
You mentioned Darren Dalton. You didn't mention him, but you mentioned the Phillies. You got Darren Dalton. You got Nails Dykstra. I've heard Bobby Aralt. I think you know Bobby. Um, um, he's talked about when you would be running lines and poles in the center field. You know, the center field area of that Philadelphia AstroTurf was just disgusting because of all the chaw spit from Lenny Dykstra. How did you 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 had nineteen wins in what year? Correct. Uh, sorry about that. I don't know the year. What was your yeah your 90, big... 97, Yeah. So what? Were you in the Cy Young ballot that year? Were you getting votes for it? Because 19 wins today, Cy Young guaranteed almost. Um, How were you performing against these guys that were maybe maybe being influenced? The Lenny Dykstras, the the Biggios, the Bagwells, um, Caminiti. Darren Dalton, you know, the poster child of the Phillies and the male model, Darren Dalton. Like, how were you faring against them? Where you had to have just been, let, you know, putting them down one by one, right, to get 19 wins? Yeah, you know, that that year was just, it was like one of those years, man. Everything went well, right? Like, if I pitched well, we won the game. Uh, if I didn't pitch well, we found a way to, we found, I, I didn't get the loss, or we found a way to win as a team. Um, yeah, and, 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 and just, just believed that I was going to win every time I took them out. It was just like, I'd never had that type of confidence ever again in my career that I had that year. Um, I had stretches of it, but I'm talking from start to finish. So it didn't really matter who I faced, right? I felt like I had the ability to get every hitter out. I feel like every hitter had a weakness. And if I could attack that weakness, I could execute my pitches that I would get them out. Um, yeah, there's certain guys you had to be more careful to. Obviously, McGuire being one of those. Cam Manitti, you mentioned, being another one of those. Um, but I never feared him, right? I never feared him. So, no, you're, and you're right. I mean, 19 wins, tough to get. Nowadays, they don't put as much stock in, in wins. Uh, but, yeah, I was, uh, I was top 10 in Cy Young. There was a guy named Pedro Martinez that was pretty good that year for Montreal. <laughs> never <laughs> heard of him. Up, yeah, he ended up winning the Cy Young that year. But, um, and I made my only all-star game of my career. So it was just a magical year, man. Um, you know, and then, you know, as the years goes on, goes, go on, you know, you, you lose some confidence here or there with an injury, um, just not having as much success. And then you go through stretches where you feel like you can dominate again. But just from start to finish, the confidence level that I had in 1997 was unparalleled with any other year I ever had. So those guys didn't – they didn't phase me. Like the, the Rockies lineup that they had back in the day with the Blake Street Bombers, like especially going into Coors Field against those guys, about as intimidating as an atmosphere and as a lineup as you're going to face based on, you know, how the ball flies out of there. And they had from one to nine guys that hit the ball at the ballpark. Um I you forgot know, and, about that team. And there and there might have been some steroid dudes in that lineup as well, but I didn't even think about that. I honestly never thought about that. I always thought about what I needed to do to get this guy out. Now, did did I know that this guy had more power than the next guy? Well, absolutely. When you're facing the big cat and Dante Bichette, Larry Walker, and Ellis Burks and Vinny Castilla back to back to back to back to back. You got to make your pitches, man. You got to find a way to get these guys out, keep them in the ballpark. Um, and when you're pitching well and you're feeling confident about your in your abilities, it's just about execution. You know, you don't really think about the what ifs. You just think if I make a pitcher, I'm gonna get them out. Um, and then over the years, there's you know certain guys that have your number that you can't get out for whatever reason. Name one. Matt Williams. 
unfortunately, uh, a rival. He wasn't a rival, he was a teammate, but he went to Carson, right? So as a young kid, we weren't we weren't that far apart, but he's a, I'd never played against him in high school. He was he had already gone to UNLV by the time I got, he might've been even in the big leagues by the time I got to high school. And he was playing for the Giants. So that was the team I grew up watching. So I knew Matty Williams trajectory, Carson, UNLV, in-state. Oh, now he's on the Giants. He's playing for the team I want. I love. And then I get to play with him, and I get called up in 95. He's on the team. So um, that was pretty intimidating. So he ends up getting traded in offseason in 96 to the Indians, now the Guardians. And we get some pretty good guys back for him that ended up having pretty good careers. Jeff Kent, Jose Vizcaino, uh, Julian Tavares, and guys that made a big difference on our team in 97. But but now he's on another team, and I got to face him. So there's a thing called um, having like having a uh, having a competitive advantage, right? So he had the competitive advantage against me because, like I said it's Matt Williams. And this is a guy that I grew up watching, right? This is this, this is like, I, I, I didn't have that. Uh, I didn't have that X factor that I needed against him. He had it against me though. Right. Um, and so I didn't have that edge against him. And so I, it showed because either I tried too hard to get him out or I didn't try hard enough. Right. I, I don't really know where it was there. It did get to a point where I was tired of getting my, I was tired of getting seeing the ball leave the ballpark at the plate. So I'm sure I probably got more competitive against him, and that probably made it worse. Uh, but he definitely had a a, uh, a confidence against me uh, that, that showed up in the results. I couldn't get him out, man. I I swear, and it wasn't it wasn't just singles. It was damage. It was doubles. It was home runs. I mean, and then I ended up working with them on Giants pre and post, and the host of our show would remind me about my, his numbers against me probably every other show. <laughs> so it became, a running, it became a running joke about, you know, how Matty bought a boat. He probably bought his house because of me. Uh, you know, all the toys that he bought over the course of his career as a result of me being in the big leagues. No, it, it became fun, fun. It became funny, but like, uh, it was just, it, it, it sucked because I really did, you know, I wanted to get him out. I just couldn't. Have you heard, by the way, how he's doing since his announcement um, with with the I cancer? Have, yeah, I, I have not heard um, how he's doing, no. But I was pretty bummed to hear that. I heard he's back but, to work a little bit. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, yeah, he's back. I mean, that, that, he's, a, he's a baseball lifer, man. He's a gamer, right? Is Maddie was he one of the most intense people you've ever been around? I've heard that about him. Hundred percent, yeah, and, and that's and, and that's probably why he had the intimidation factor over me as well, um, because he was so intense. And uh, but he's like you say, he's he's a gamer, so he he's going to battle through this. You know, he will, and and he wants to be back on the field and be a part of that that that, that squad over in San Diego. Him and Bob Melvin back together, so pretty good squad. Um, yeah. 
I, I know that I don't have you for very much longer. First of all, thank you, Sean. It's been a joy watching your career, knowing where you came from, knowing that you're a, a hometown kid, even though I am north of you. I did play for Coach Wheeler two years on the Nevada Yankees with Maddie and a bunch of it was like another college you know college guys that would come back for the summer that probably weren't playing in the Cape or the Kansas um, in the Jayhawk League and the Wooden Bat League it was a Wooden Bat League though so I, 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 I like that guy he was a great we got along great so congratulations I'd love to have you back on I could talk baseball with you all day long but I got to ask you a question <clears throat> Olympic style event Top athletes from the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, women's softball, fencing, ping pong players, bowlers, swimmers, baseball players, you name it, wrestlers, UFC fighters, Olympic style setup event. You got to take a basketball and shoot it, lay it up, dribble it. You got to run a pattern, catch a football. You got to run. You got to jump in a pool and be able to swim. You got to be able to grab a ping pong paddle and hit the ball back and forth and volley. You got to be able to get under a volleyball and and, and set it and spike it. You have to be able to um, grab a tennis racket and play. You got to be able to put three fingers into a bowling ball like Mookie Betts and roll maybe a 170. Out of all of those athletes in the world, who's going to come out as the best at all of those different athletic events. I'm not saying that Sean Estes is going to get in a pool and beat Michael Phelps or Sean Estes is going to get on a snowboard and beat Sean White. But I promise you, Sean White's not going to get in the cage and hit a ball or ground up, get a ball at shortstop and field it clean. And I'm not saying that someday with some practice, he wouldn't look a little bit better at it. And I'm saying that about football players and basketball players and swimmers and all of them. But I see all of these baseball players with your athletic ability, specifically yours that you grew up with, that you trained so hard to achieve. I see you going in and looking like you could play ping pong, looking like you can swim and compete against somebody, looking like you can dribble and shoot a basketball, catch a football with your pinkies together or your thumbs together, not using your chest. Am I on to something here, Sean? Can we get a TV show going? I know we used to have pros (laughs) versus Joes, but are baseball players the best all around athletes in the world? Oh, well, I'm going to get into trouble if I say it. If I, say <laughs> I know, yes. especially with the Warriors playing tonight. And you got all, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of friction in this. This came about in Argentina on a duck hunt. And I had, oh, I didn't even mention the sport that he told me, but I had a feller from uh, one of my partners tell me that soccer players were the best athletes in the world. And I literally spit out my food and started laughing. And I'm like, all they do is run. I'm not saying that they can't dribble a ball and they, they're very talented. Don't get me wrong but I've seen lots of baseball players dribble a soccer ball like they know what they're doing. I just don't see Pele or Ronaldo or any of these guys facing Sean Estes and looking like they have a clue. I mean, look at the great Michael Jordan. He's the greatest basketball player in the history of the world, in my opinion. Again, very opinionated, sorry. But he gets to Birmingham, and he's not a baseball player. He, he's, a, he's a great athlete, but he's yeah. not a baseball player. Come on, Sean, be honest. We cannot let this go. People, <laughs> people never give baseball players the credit they deserve as being great athletes. Eye-hand coordination, core strength, yeah. balance, everything that it takes to play ping pong. You know how hard ping pong is to play? It's difficult unless you're a baseball yeah. player. That was kind of conceited to say that, but talk to me, Sean Estes. Am I on to something here, or do you disagree? Hey, hey, you're talking about baseball players. You're absolutely onto it. Uh, you're onto something. No, I, I mean, I consider myself a good athlete. and I, I played with a lot of really good athletes over the years. Um, a lot of them were pitchers that I pitched with. I mean, Kirk Reeder comes to mind. And he doesn't seem like a good athlete just because he didn't throw the ball 100. Doesn't mean, but he could pitch. He was an athletic 
fielder. He could field his position. This is a guy I played six years with on the Giants. He could fill it up from three points. Land. He could throw a football. He could catch a football. He was great at ping pong. He could swim. He could do all those things really well. Did was he great at anything? No, but he did them all really well. Like there's nothing you could put you couldn't put in front of him that he couldn't do well at. Throwing darts, bowling, whatever. Exactly. You, whatever. You, yes. And I would say that. I would say I can I can do all those things pretty well. I mean I I'm, I'm I play competitive pickleball right now. Like I mean like I took I, I took it up a couple of years ago and now like I'm playing in tournaments. You know what I mean it's like um, I love basketball. I could play basketball growing up. Uh, I never played football, but I always believed that I could be a quarterback. I know I can catch and I can run. I'm, I can I have speed. There's a lot of guys like me in baseball. Like that, they were able like Kirk readers, right? Um, a lot of guys that just are, they can do everything well. Um, nothing great other than maybe hit a baseball or throw a baseball, right? That's what they do great, but they do a lot of other things really well. Now, don't get me wrong, there's some unathletic baseball players too, and typically they're all POs, right? They're all, they're all pitcher only guys. <laughs> they're guys that like grew up just, sorry, you can't. You can't field your position very well, so you're, or you can't play defense very well. You don't have very good hand-eye. You can't hit very well. Um, I've seen you shoot a basketball, not pretty. You're going to be a pitcher, right, because you have a good arm and we'll teach you how to pitch. There's a lot of those guys too, yes. right? And like in the point you got back to about playing other sports, it helps you become a better athlete by playing all those sports. It just does. You know, and I and my agent told me when I was playing, he said that he quit playing soccer his senior year of high school and he just focused on baseball. And he was an infielder and he said his infield defense suffered because he did not play base soccer. He felt that soccer helped his feet, helped his agility, yep. helped his quickness, helped his first step. And that suffered his senior year of high school. He noticed a difference defensively because he didn't play soccer and have the, had those skills that he had learned in soccer to help him become a better athlete to play baseball. Um, and I think you see a lot of baseball players that played multiple sports in high school. Um, I feel like more football, basketball, they pretty much play football and basketball, you know, and they excel in those sports. Uh, Kyler Murray comes to mind as a guy that was really good at football and really good at baseball. And he's probably a great athlete. and can probably do all those things as well. He's probably really good at basketball. So I'm not saying there's definitely outliers in every sport, but I, I think you're on to something as far as there's a lot of baseball players that can do a lot. They're, they're just good athletes because it takes, it takes like the, these detailed skills to be really good at baseball. They yeah, can, we, play, can play everywhere. Yes, they can. And I just, I don't know if you would find that. <clears throat> with the best NFL players. I'm not saying there's not great athletes and you might take one out that can play you in ping pong and, and volley back and forth. But I've just been around so many locker rooms in baseball to where I watch what these athletes players can do. And again, please, I don't want somebody writing in and saying, well, what about female sports? This includes female sports. I'm talking like the best athletes all around in the world, in my opinion, that could be, that could be deemed, you know, successful in other areas are baseball players. They just have a different skill set that allows them to pick up that racket and be able to volley. And I just don't see that. 
I, I heard this argument yesterday. Uh, it was NFL against NBA, and I'm like, both of you are so wrong. Both of your arguments is so wrong about the they vertical jump. Yeah, it was like the vertical jump, and they're dunking, and they're and I'm like, dude, I know 30 baseball players off the top of my head that can two feet, two hand dunk, no problem. Um, yeah. Bo Jackson won the 86 foot locker slam dunk contest. He was a 55 meter NCAA record holder for track and field. He was a, an All American before he got ousted out of his senior year at Auburn. He was a Heisman Trophy winner, but Bo and Dion, I don't know if that will ever happen again in sports where it's back and forth, you know, going from one to the other. I just, maybe I am biased, but I just watch people like my brothers that weren't on your level in baseball, but were very good athletes Mm -hmm. and they can just excel in all that stuff. If you put them on, you can take my brother Clay and put him with a hacky sack, bat, 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 bat. You put a rope in his hand and he's roping cattle like there's no tomorrow. There's just something different about the baseball skill set that allows us to do all that stuff consistently better than any other specialized athlete. I don't know if I'm going to take a lot of crap for that, but man, I, I just spit my food out. I was eating a duck empanada in, in South Argentina and I spit it out and I'm like soccer players. Now, if you would have said hockey players, hockey players yeah. got an unbelievable skill set. They're skating, they're swinging they're, they're, they're That's an athlete to me, a soccer player. Now, again, can I get on the, the field and run with them and play with them? Absolutely not. But I can get on the soccer field and dribble a ball and kick it into the goal and dribble it on my foot. And I just don't know if that soccer player is going to come over and grab the bat and get in the cage and even look like he understands timing or front foot or backside turn or hips or, you know, all of the stuff that goes in to completing the scientifically proven hardest thing to do in any sport is hitting a baseball, a round object with a round object, changing yeah. planes. I mean, how how can you go from a 97-mile-an-hour Sean Estes fastball to an 82-mile-an-hour changeup, which I consider the hardest pitch to hit in baseball, and be successful three out of ten times and you're considered an all-star? I mean, that in a, that, that in a nutshell is kind of like exactly, like three out of ten times and you're considered <laughs> successful, right? Yeah, no, I'd say be hitting a baseball and, and probably hitting a golf ball to the hardest thing. Hitting a golf ball straight uh, to the hardest things. Golf, golf's a tough sport too. But oh god, tough. like you said, who goes baseball players? Who, baseball players. So. <laughs> <laughs> now look, Jor- Jordan can hit the ball. You look at Barkley, and you're like. That's not a baseball player. Like I could tell yeah. by your golf swing and that's not, I think Charles Barkley's awesome, but man, I just wanted to bring that up. Thank you so much for being here. We got to do it again. And uh, I love listening to your commentary. Um, I love knowing that you came from this area. I'm glad that I got to face you. I faced a major leaguer. And one day when I come down to the Bay, we'll go have some chowder together and, uh, and hang out and watch some baseball. I love watching. And for sure next, next March at spring training, we got to get together. I'm down there every spring. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to hook up with you, man. Uh, I've been enjoying talking to you. Uh, you know, it's, I don't get to play, talk to many guys that you play against, right? You know, over the years. Every once in a while, I ran into someone and said, yeah, I faced you in high school. And, um, you know, those are my roots, man. Northern Nevada, that's my roots. I grew up, I still go back there and visit, you know, my family. So still in Gardnerville. Uh, it's a great place. Kruko, he, he ended up, you know, Ended up in Reno, of all places, you know, yeah. being a California guy. Are, are him and are him and Kipe the best duo in baseball right now? When they're together, no, no question. They've been, they, they've been the best duo in baseball for a long time. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're unrivaled. And, and what they're doing now, and now that I'm in broadcasting, just to see, like, how difficult it is not to be in the same booth together, but still seem like you're together. 
you know, because when, when uh, the team's on the road, like, like right now, the team's in, in here in Arizona and Kuiper's by himself in the booth and crew goes in the studio in San Francisco and they're doing the game and they do a split cast. Like you listen to their broadcasts and, and you would not know that they're not together. Like yes. you would think that they're in the same booth. They, because they, they just know each other so well. I mean, they can, they, they know they're like when you have, when you're working with someone in the booth, you know, and you're doing a broadcast that you don't know that well, you're looking at them for cues, right? Um, you don't know exactly when it, when it's okay to, 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 to talk or if they have something that they want to say, or they want you to be quiet, then they'll, they'll give you that cue. Well, they don't have that ability to do that being not being in the same booth, but you would like, they know each other so well that it doesn't matter uh, because they've been together for so long, but they've also, they've also just, they're buddies too, you know, they're best friends. Gotta love um, there's no one. And they're two guys that played the game. Like you don't get a color guy and a play-by-play guy that played base that both played. Typically they're your color guy played, but your play-by-play guy isn't a guy that played. So to have, and not only that, they were teammates and buddies when they played. Um, so it's just, it's a, it's a dynamic that, that you don't get very often if ever. And then they've also like, they figured out a way to just nail it. Right. And, uh, yeah, they're the best. I don't know. And, and I think that, you know, they should go in the hall of fame together personally, radio and baseball. Yeah. They're a brand man. Kirk and Kite, you know, they, they, I think they need to go into bet together. Before I let Sean Estes go, the great Sean Estes, what a career, over 100 wins, thousands of strikeouts. Like, this guy would mow him down from high school. If he would have played college at Stanford, I mean, what a what a, an accomplishment. What, what a way to make your parents proud with this career, but also had the GPA and the intellect and the intelligence to even have a conversation with somebody from the Palo Alto Stanford well, uh, I campus. Not cheat, I might not have cheated in baseball, but I definitely did my fair share of cheating <laughs> in high school. The Jack Daniels Hot Seat, our, our podcast is called This Life Ain't For Everybody, not because my life is any better than anybody's. It's just that there's so many different walks of life out there in this just being and conversing and talking brings so many good people together, in my opinion. I love hearing the stories. We're going to go into the Jack Daniels Hot Seat with Sean Estes to end our conversation today. You've already alluded to this in the previous uh, hour, Sean Estes. Pete Rose, yes or no, should be in the Hall of Fame. Yes or no? Uh, yes. Um you get one swing to pick to watch for the rest of your life. Will Clark or Ken Griffey Jr.? Uh, I can't go against Will the Thrill. <laughs> okay. I played, with uh, I played with Ken, but uh, I got to go Will. Yes or no, are you a fan of the new rules, the three new rules in baseball, including the pitch clock? 100%. Big, big time. Best baseball movie of all time is it? Eight Major Man Out. Amen out over Major League. Oh, my gosh. I thought we had a lot in common, Sean Estes. Thank you, my man, for being here. Hey, My pleasure. You got to admit, though, the lines that come out of Major League are the funnest to quote for the rest of our lives. The best lines of any movie, yes. But my favorite baseball movie is Eight Men Out. Love that movie. I love that movie, too. Major League, though, close second. Oh, I love me. I like Bull Durham. I like Field of Dreams. But Major Leagues, man, they they just did it for me. Sean. Thank you, my man. I'll see you soon in the Bay. All right, Chad. Sounds good, bud. 
Life on earth won't last too long So what you gonna do when the money's all gone I'd rather be poor living off in a hole Than rich as hell without a soul Life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do when the money's all gone Say life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do when the money's all gone